it seems fair to observe that good news, and I mean by that genuine good news, is very difficult to come by. You take the man who goes to his doctor after a series of tests, and he asks the doctor for the prognosis, and the doctor said to him, you are, you are here and you are seeking good news. I have good news for you and bad news. And he said, well, give me the bad news first. The doctor says to him, you are very, very sick. And if immediate action is not taken, you will die. And so he said, well, what is the good news? And the doctor said to him, you are going to make me a very rich man. <laughs> I think that good news, genuine good news, is hard to find. You just have to take up your phone when a telemarketer calls. You've won a trip to Alaska. I mean, you're ready to pack your bags if you are foolish. Because you know if you did get to Alaska, you would get there with your pocket empty. You would be so tired after all of the meetings and all of the pressure put on you to buy something. Good news is hard to come by. And even if you appear to get genuine good news where you go in and your boss calls you in and you don't get a pink slip, but he tells you you are promoted to the office with the window, you realize that with that, uh, raising pay, a new office and even secretary and people to help you, that it comes with longer hours, more pressure to succeed. Good news is hardly good news. But when it comes to spiritual things, there is good news and only good news, and that is the gospel. Because with the gospel, this is genuine good news. This morning I began to elaborate on our call to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and particularly of the gift of the gospel. But I want to flesh out a little bit more of this gospel, this good news that has been given to us. And we're given a glimpse of this good news here in chapter 26 of Luke's book of Acts. What we have in Luke chapter in Luke work in Luke's work that is Acts in chapter 26 is a section that falls within Paul's arrest and imprisonment that runs from chapter 23 to chapter 28. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem ostensibly for stirring up trouble for sedition for bringing Gentiles into the temple. And we know that having been arrested, there were, we are told, some 40 or more Jews, more than 40 Jews, who forged a pact, who came together and agreed that they would never eat or drink until they had killed the Apostle Paul. As a result, Paul is removed, whisked away to Caesarea, the provincial capital on the Mediterranean coast, built between 25 and 13 AD by Herod the Great for Caesar Augustus. And there he goes for trial before the Roman governor at the time, Felix. We know that Paul was not released because Felix kept him there 
until a new procurator, Festus, was appointed. It happens that Paul has his audience before Festus. But he also is unable to determine what to do with Paul. And it so occurred that King Agrippa, that is Agrippa II, the grandson of Herod the Great, arrives in Caesarea. And he comes there to visit the new appointed procurator Festus. And so Festus tells him that he has a Jew, one who has been accused by his own people. And he wants Agrippa, who grew up in Rome, but also had some Jewish blood, part Jew, understood the things of the Jews, the religion of the Jews, Judaism. He wanted Agrippa. And Agrippa, of course, as we know, came with Bernice, his sister. And there was this suggestion that he was living with Bernice, his sister, in an incestuous relationship. So he comes and he knows about Jewish things and spiritual matters. And so Festus brings Paul before him. He wants Paul to give his defense before Agrippa because Agrippa will be able then to help him to write a letter that would accompany Paul as he was taken to Rome to the emperor. Paul had appealed to the emperor in Rome and he was going to be tried before the emperor. But Festus wanted someone who knew Jewish law and knew Roman life to help him to craft a letter to send to Caesar so that he could be able to explain why Paul was on trial. And so Paul is in chapter 26 defending himself and the gospel that he proclaimed before Agrippa II. In fact, the defense that he gives of his ministry begins with his persecution of the church and his encounter and conversion. And finally, it closes with his appeal to Agrippa, an appeal which Agrippa uh, accuses Paul of seeking to, con to convert him. When you look at Paul's testimony to Jesus Christ and the gospel, you will find that the testimony turns is essentially on the resurrection of Jesus. You see that in chapter 26, 6 to 8, where he's, he tells them, he's capturing the heart of his message. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? At the heart of Paul's defense is that God had raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. In verse 22 to 23, you see that Paul is defending the resurrection of Christ. And he says, Therefore having obtained help by God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those things which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And so Paul's defense is essentially about the resurrected Jesus. But in his defense before Agrippa, Paul gives us an idea of the good news of the gospel. And I want us to look at a few essential elements of the gospel that Paul describes. And I want you to turn and look at verses 17 and 18. Here in this section, Paul is describing what occurred 
when he was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. In verse 12, he's actually telling us that he was persecuting believers. He was journeying to Damascus. He had authority from the chief priests, the rulers, to arrest those who believed in Jesus. And how at midday, he was confronted by a bright light. And that he was knocked to the ground and he heard a voice speaking to him in Hebrew language saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And Paul says he asked the Lord, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then we see the narration of his commission, his call and, and being sent to preach the gospel. The Lord Jesus, he says, told him, but rise and stand on your feet in verse 16. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you. And here it is, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. Here we have a description of the gospel. A description that is conveyed in three infinitive clauses. The first infinitive is in verse 18. He's been called and he's been sent, here's the first infinitive, to open their eyes. The second infinitive is revealed and it says to turn them from darkness to light. And the third is not so clear, at least in the English, but it is clear in the, in the original. In verse 18, in the latter part, that they may receive or to receive forgiveness. And so the three infinities which explain the gospel is to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness, so that they might receive forgiveness of sins. And it is these infinities that I want to look at in terms of an exposition of the gospel. First then, as Paul makes his defense about the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a messenger or a witness to the gospel, as he explains the gospel, we need to first of all recognize the initial act of the gospel. Paul describes the initial act of the gospel as that which consists of illumination for spiritually blinded people. The Lord Jesus told him when he was confronted on the Damascus road that he was going to be protected from the Jewish people and the Gentiles and he was going to be sent to do what? to open their eyes. It is in the preaching of the gospel that the eyes of men and women who are blinded, spiritually blinded, will be opened. The first act, the initial act of the gospel consists of illumination, of giving light. That is what the gospel does. It gives light to sinners. Scripture teaches that men and women are born in sin. We are shaped in iniquity. And we are characterized by spiritual darkness. I think of Psalm 
14 verses 2 to 3 where the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. The Bible says they have all turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. That men in sin lack true knowledge of God. That they do not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We are characterized in sin by spiritual blindness. We do not understand or appreciate spiritual things. We do not understand the grace of God, the awfulness of our sins, or of the terrible consequence of sin, which is eternal judgment. And spiritual blindness means that we are incapable to appreciate Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it is primarily based upon the bent of the human nature. That having been born in sin, sin covers our eyes. Sin hardens our heart. We are darkened, we are corrupted by sin. We are incapable of seeing the light. In fact, Men love darkness more than light. But the darkness that exists in us, this lack of spiritual alertness or understanding, this obtuseness of heart, comes not merely because of our spiritual alienation from God, but it lies in the activity of Satan over sinners. For scripture describes men who are in darkness, not only do they have a lack of understanding because they've turned aside from God, but they themselves are captured and kept in darkness by Satan. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Satan deceives men to think that they are seeing when they are blind. He deceives men and women to think that they are free when they are slaves. You, you just go down Young Street or Church Street and you will see men and women who will tell you we are free to live the way we live. But what they see as freedom is spiritual slavery. They're blinded. And it is not only men on Young Street or Church Street. It is all of us in sin. We think that which is good, evil, and what is evil, good. Why? Because we are duped. We are kept and deceived by Satan himself. It is therefore only in the preaching of the gospel that the light penetrates the darkness. It is in preaching the good news of the gospel. The gospel brings illumination. And Paul says it this way. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of himself, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It is the Lord who gives to us in the preaching of the word the spirit of wisdom and understanding. 
It is in the preaching of the word of God that the spirit, who is the author of the word, who open our eyes that we may see our sins and that we may see our Savior, who is Jesus Christ, and flee to him. The first initial act then of the gospel is illumination. It enlightens us. It shows us our state in sin. I don't know those of you who are Christians, you know, it was a, you know, a, some, a penny dropped when you heard the gospel and understood it for the first time. Something revolutionary happened, a sea change happened when you came to understand not that men are sinners, but that you are a sinner before an angry God. Something revolutionary occurred. Something revolutionary occurred when your eyes were open and you recognized that in Jesus Christ there is a real Savior who forgives real sinners. It was marvelous. You've heard the gospel and read the Bible maybe many times before, but it never registered. But one day, the Spirit of God opened your eyes and you saw your sin. and You saw how terrible they were, but you also saw your Savior and how great He is. You see, it's illumination. The first act of the gospel is to expose our sins and then to expose us to our Savior. But Paul tells us something else about the gospel. If the initial act of the gospel is illumination, the purpose of the gospel is conversion. He says that he has been called by God, commissioned by God, to open their eyes. And then he tells us the purpose of the gospel. In order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. You see, the gospel not only brings illumination, light. Its intent is conversion. To turn Men from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So the gospel is not merely about showing us Christ. It's not only giving us information. But it leads us to a verdict. It leads to a change. Its goal is to turn men. And here we have the verb epistrepho. To turn or to convert. It means to change direction. The goal of the gospel is that we should change direction. The purpose of the gospel is essentially to effect a moral change, to convert us. And that is what is intimated here when it says that he was sent to open their eyes, to bring illumination. And illumination should lead to conversion, to turn them from darkness to light. To turn from darkness to light is in fact describing the moral change must, that must take place in those who are saved. When a person is converted, it leads to a change of lifestyle, a change in behavior, a moral or ethical change. You see, conversion consists of two elements. First of all, it consists of repentance. When a person is converted, changed, that person will first of all exhibit repentance, a confession, a grieving of, for, for sin, and a turning away from sin. And when one turns from sin in repentance, there must be a change from darkness to light. 
Peter says it, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 All those who are converted will turn from a life lived in sin. Now let me be very clear. I am not suggesting or intimating by any means that when one is saved, one becomes sinless. I do not believe in sinless perfection. It does not exist, not in this world. All of us, even when we are saved, will fall. All of us, when we are converted, will still, from time to time, fall into sin and must repent. But the man who is converted breaks the sin habit. In fact, God breaks the sin habit in him. He no longer lives willingly and freely and joyfully in sin. He's been taken out of the realm of darkness, the lifestyle that is displeasing to God and placed in the realm of light. There is still residual indwelling sin with which we deal, but for all intents and purposes, we are new creatures even though we are not yet perfect creatures. That distinction must be borne in mind. You see, when one is changed, It leads to a change in lifestyle, a change in perspectives, a change in objectives, a change in thinking and willing and feeling. It's a change from the old way of life to a new way of life. And this change, this ethical change, is a directional change. Because it is a change from the lordship of Satan... To the lordship of God. You see what it says there in the text. He was sent to open their eyes. That's illumination. The purpose of that is to turn them from darkness to light. And from the power of God. A power of Satan to the power of God. That is conversion. You see when one is saved. When one is converted. Not only is there a change in lifestyle. A change in ethical behavior. But there is a change in direction. One turns From the power of Satan. One is no longer under the lordship of Satan. One is being liberated and freed from captivity and bondage to Satan. And one turns from Satan and one turns to God. This turning from sin is what we call repentance. This turning to God is faith. You see, when one is truly converted, it leads to conversion, which consists of repentance, turning from sin, and it consists of faith, turning to God. And Paul could say of the Thessalonians, you turned from idols to serve a living and true God. And so we notice then the purpose of the gospel. We see its initial act. To illuminate us. It brings illumination. But we see its purpose, which is conversion. That God demands that true followers of him, as his, must be changed people. That's the purpose of the gospel. It's it's, It's never to call you and leave you the way you are. You may come as you are, but you may not stay as you are. There must be a changed in behavior, in belief, in thinking, in willing, because it's a change from darkness to light, from Satan to God. When you become a Christian, you become a person under new management. 
You're no longer under the management of Satan, you're under the management of God. And by that means, that same token then, you will begin to reflect the character of God. If you are belonging to God as a child of God, you want to be like him, father like son. Those of us who have children know how often when we criticize our sons, much of what we criticize them are for is what we ourselves are doing. They're very much like us, a chip of the old block. When you become a child of God, you're converted into the family of God, you become like your father, who is holy and upright and good. But the apostle tells us one more thing about the gospel. If its initial act is illumination, if its purpose is conversion, then its gifts, he tells us, are the forgiveness of sins and the reception of an inheritance. Notice again in verse 18, Paul defines his commission to proclaim the gospel as opening the eyes or opening blinded eyes, turning sinners from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God. And then we see the third infinitive, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me, Jesus says. This is what the Lord tells him. The gift of the gospel consists of these two elements. We are not saying that these are the only elements in the gospel, but these are the two that the Lord gave to the Apostle Paul. He outlines then the result of the gospel, the gift of the gospel. And the first gift of the gospel, he says, is forgiveness. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. When one is illuminated, when the gospel comes and the scales are removed from our eyes and we see our Savior and our need for him, when we turn to him in conversion, leaving behind an old life and devoting ourselves to the lordship of our God. The Lord also gives us blessings. And one of the sweetest of blessings that we have is a thesis, forgiveness. The term forgiveness means to release, to exempt from guilt and punishment. When it comes to forgiveness amongst us, as human beings, it's a very hard thing to do. We find it very hard. If somebody does something terrible to you, or somebody took you aside and tore off strips of you, and belittle you and berate you, and leave you shell shock, cut you little dices and little pieces with words, when you walk away, you don't often feel uplifted. You probably are fuming. You start imagining words and vocabulary. You probably go to your dictionary and start finding new words you never knew that existed. Because you want to meet him again. And you want to have a verbal challenge with him. And you're going to give him words that he's never heard. You want to demolish him. And even when people repent of injuries that they have done to us, we still find it difficult. Once bitten twice shy. So we give them a wide berth. We forgive them, but we don't want to be friends with them. Our forgiveness often is not real forgiveness. But here we have in the gospel the blessing of forgiveness. I want to talk a little bit about what this is. Our Lord says, 
that the gospel that Paul proclaims is to turn men from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. It is to be released from the guilt of our misdeeds and the punishment that should ordinarily follow them. It was the heart forgiveness of the gospel that Paul proclaimed. It was the heart of the gospel that the apostles proclaimed. So in Luke chapter 4, 46 to 47, Jesus could say to them, Thus it was written, it was thus necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins or forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all, gener all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus said he had to die and he had to be raised from the dead. And the reason is that repentance must be preached, but not only repentance, but forgiveness that release from the guilt and the penalty of sin, it's at the very heart, forgiveness of the gospel. And when Peter proclaimed the gospel in Acts 2, he could say to his audience, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter in Acts 5 29 to 31 could also preach forgiveness. And so Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. They were being persecuted for preaching the gospel. And he says, The God of our Father raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to the, his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I'm only quoting these verses for you to understand that the gospel is essentially in, at its very root a gospel of forgiveness. In Psalm 103, the psalmist could say that the Lord forgives our sins as far as the east is from the west. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. It's a language of forgiveness. Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast our sins in the depths of the sea. See, the Bible teaches that forgiveness by God is permanent and complete. It's a complete removal of our sins from the sight of God. So Isaiah 40, 44 and 22, 23 says, I have blotted out... Like a thick cloud, your transgressions, and like a cloud, your sins. Or, the Lord will say, you will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. All of this is to point out that the Lord removes completely our sins. He forgives. He let them go. He doesn't bring them back to mind. He doesn't punish us for them. We also know that this forgiveness, which the gospel gives emanates from the graciousness of God. It is because of God's heart. It is because God is loving and compassionate and tender in heart that there is a blotting out of our sins. So the Lord could say, The Lord, Lord, merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Or he could say, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. 
You see, to the Lord belongs mercy and forgiveness. This forgiveness that we receive in the gospel is this which has been earned by Jesus. For Paul tells the Philippians, or the Ephesians, sorry, in 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. It is because Christ died and paid for our sins that God forgives. And Paul has been sent with this gospel, which brings illumination with the intent of leading to conversion, a change in life. And it also brings gifts, the gift of forgiveness. This is who we are as Christians if we are, we are saved. We are forgiven sinners. We do not go to God and pretend that we are perfect. We know that we have sinned. But the reason we rejoice is because God has wiped the slate clean. He's removed all our sins as far as the east is from the west. We stand before his throne of judgment on the day when he comes to judge the world. And we will hear that good news, not guilty. There is no charge against you. And you ask the question, Lord, but what about the mountain of sins? They have been placed on Jesus Christ. And he has taken them all away at the cross. Amen. And he says to you, you are free to go. Because Christ paid it all. The second blessing that he offers in the gospel is not only forgiveness, but an inheritance. An inheritance. The term that we have here, inheritance, kleros, was used in the Old Testament for lot. It means lot. A piece of land that is given. And so Israel in the Old Testament had their lot in the land of Canaan. The piece of land that God allotted to them. That was considered to be an inheritance. When it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament sees our inheritance not in terms of land, physical land, but in spiritual terms. And the scriptures speak about the believer's inheritance. Paul uses similar language when he spoke to the believers and the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20.32. He says, so now brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance, a lot, a place among all those who are sanctified. In the same language that he uses here in 26, Acts 26.18, where he says that they may receive forgiveness. And an inheritance, a lot, a place. Amongst those who are sanctified. The gospel gives us a place, an inheritance, amongst those who are sanctified. The verb sanctified is a perfect passive. Or perfect passive participle. It means amongst those who are set aside. We have a place amongst believers. You see, believers are sanctified definitively. We talk about sanctification as being progressive. Because we are constantly, we are ongoingly changed by God. We are being sanctified. It's a progressive act. But there is a sense in which we are definitively sanctified. In the, in, in the sense that we have been set aside for God. We are definitively sanctified. 
And this is what Paul is talking about here. He says that the gospel gives us an inheritance in those whom God has set aside for himself. Those who are set aside, sanctified by faith in me. So that those who believe in Jesus Christ are first of all set aside. They belong to God. That's a status that cannot change. That's an objective reality. And then God goes on working in your life to change you. But you are definitively put aside for God's glory, dedicated to him, devoted to him. And then he goes on changing you. And Paul tells Agrippa and those who heard him that the gospel not only opened blinded eyes, leads to conversion, turning men from darkness to light and from Satan to God. But the gospel brings the gift of forgiveness and it gives us an inheritance. We think of our inheritance, the money or the land or the car our parents will leave us when they die. But in Jesus we have a greater inheritance. We have a place amongst those who are sanctified. It refers to the eternal fellowship that we will have with God in heaven. Scripture defines this inheritance in terms of eternal life. It describes it in terms of salvation. And this inheritance that we have is a present reality. So Paul says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. In Ephesians 1 verse 11. We have an inheritance in Christ. Because he is the heir of all things. We have an inheritance that the Bible teaches us that is secure. Because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. In other words, we have a place in heaven amongst those who are sanctified. And we will not miss it because God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that is not that the Holy Spirit seals you or does anything to you differently. It is his presence in you which is the seal. It is by his indwelling presence that we are secure. Peter puts it slightly differently. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible. An undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And you, he says, are being kept for that inheritance. Kept by God, by the power of God, that is by the power of his Holy Spirit for that inheritance. So here are the two blessings that you have when you, when you become a believer. When you are illuminated, when you are converted, you are blessed with forgiveness of sins. You are blessed with an inheritance, a place in heaven amongst those who are set apart by faith in Jesus Christ. My friends, the gospel is good news. True, real good news. And it's important that all of us, first of all, experience the power of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul could say, for the gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. 
We need, first of all, to experience the life-changing work of the gospel. We must not merely hear about good news, but we must experience it in our hearts and in our lives. And how do we come to experience this good news of Christ who saves? We do so by, first of all, obeying the gospel. The Bible tells you that your first response must be to believe. What must I do to be saved? You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is the good news. That nothing in my hand I bring but simply to the cross I cling. This is not about working your way in. If you try to work your way to heaven, you work your way into hell. You can never work your way into heaven. You see, we, we seek to live our lives through between two poles. Between antinomianism on one hand, living in freedom and license to sin. Or we live our lives in legalism, putting all kinds of rules and strictures upon ourselves. But at least let me clear, both antinomianism and legalism lead to the same place, hell. If you live without restraint, you shall live apart from Christ. But if you live by your works, seeking somehow to ingratiate yourselves by your good works into the favor of God, you will never make it into heaven. Why? Because your good works and my good works are never good enough. The Bible tells us that the best we can come up with is to be compared to filthy rags, menstruous cloth. You can't impress God with good works. Because it's not good enough, God demands perfection. But here is where the gospel comes in. It tells us that God has given us a perfect savior. One who was sinless. One who is a son of God. Who took all our sins and carried them away at the cross. And that by believing in him and trusting fully in his blood and in his work, his finished work on the cross, by simply trusting in the sacrifice of Christ, in the Christ who died and rose again, all your sins are forgiven. You need to know and experience the gospel. Are you resting in yourself or are you resting in Christ? Have you been saved? The good news of the gospel is that there is in Jesus Christ salvation for those who look to him, to those who turn to him. That he gives us forgiveness. How do you receive it? By confessing your sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So first of all, we must experience the power of the gospel by turning to Christ in repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But having experienced the gospel, we must become ambassadors of the good news ambassadors of the message of reconciliation. I, I don't want to go over what I said this morning. But the Lord has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And I know the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 it is to a church that had false teachers. And some people had turned away from the Apostle Paul and his gospel. And he's calling them to reconciliation. But all of us who are Christians... We have been given the message of reconciliation to tell men that they can have peace with God. That you do not have to live in, in, in terror of God. 
You can have forgiveness of sins. You can have reconciliation. That we have this treasure in earthen jars. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. He has entrusted to us this good news of the gospel. Though we are weak like clay jars. So that everybody might know that the power does not come from us but comes from God. But you have been called, like the Apostle Paul, to be a witness. You have been appointed to preach reconciliation, to tell men and women that there is a Savior. And if they look to him, they'll be saved. You must do that. And let me be clear. There is nothing wrong in telling your story, in bearing witness. Paul told his story to Agrippa. He tells him, I was a Jew, one of my own people. I hated the Christian faith. I persecuted the church. Jesus met me on the road and struck me down and converted me. He's telling his story. But you know, he was telling his story as a part of a greater story, the story of Jesus Christ. You know, there are Christians who go around telling their testimonies. And they talk about how bad they were. And how terrible. And somewhere along the line, they trusted in Jesus. They believed. And the story is 99.9% about them. You see, when you tell your story, make your story a part of a bigger story. And the bigger story is about Jesus, about grace, not about how you found him, but how he searched for you and found you. How by grace he did what you could not do. He gave you a new heart and a new spirit. Tell your story, but only as a subset of the story of Jesus. And make sure that the light points only to him and to his grace. What must you do with this gospel? You must know its power in your own heart and life. You must become an ambassador of the gospel. And my friends, you must live in the hope of the gospel. That's my concluding point here. Paul could say to the Colossians, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. Not only must you know the power of the gospel in your life, and become an ambassador of the gospel, you must live in the hope of the gospel. That in a world of trials and difficulties, of failures and heartaches, you must live knowing that the gospel promises you not only forgiveness, but an inheritance, a place with God, a place with Christ amongst those who are sanctified. You must look, you must look forward to the coming of Christ when you will take your place with all the saints in the presence of your God. That you will see him and you will be with him forever. So you may not have a home here. You may live on the streets. Or you may live in the shelter. You may live in a rented place that you really can't call your own. But you do have a place. 
And your place is with your heavenly father. And one day you will take your place in his presence. With all those vast throng of Christians from centuries before and for centuries to come if God shall tarry. You shall take your place in the presence of almighty God. That's what the gospel offer you. A place amongst those who are sanctified. Live with that in view. Because it will help you to bear the trials and the hardship of this life. This is not your home. You are just a visitor passing through. You're going to your eternal home where Jesus Christ dwells. May God bless you. May he encourage your soul for Jesus' sake.